Hello and welcome to the Morrissey Exchange podcast. The information contained within this podcast has been provided as general advice only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances or objectives. You should consider if this advice is right for you and consult your financial advisor for further information. Hello and welcome to 2023 listeners and to the 40th episode of the Morrissey Exchange. This is, of course, our first episode for 2023 and uh, what looks to be a jam-packed year. I've brought back a crowd favourite in Mr Martin Crabb, who is the Chief Investment Officer at Sherwin Partners. There is already so much to consider and discuss despite the fact the year has barely begun. And of course, Krabby is just one of those guys who knows a lot of stuff, both helpful and trivial, the perfect dinner party guest. So without any further ado, welcome, Mr. Krab. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Good to be back. All right. So let's kick straight into it. First and foremost, uh, let's deal with the elephant in the room, which is, of course, interest rates and inflation. What will happen with inflation in Australia this year and where and when do interest rate rises stop? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? And uh, just this morning, the uh, the um, governor of the Reserve Bank will get grilled by Parliament on exactly these topics. So, I mean, inflation is um, is something that most of us, um, well, people of my genre probably remember it when they were kids, but most people really don't know what inflation is, and they don't know how corrosive it is, which is a term that uh, Governor Lowe uses to describe inflation. Um, so if you go back to the 1970s and 1980s, we had you know double-digit inflation, and we had you know interest rates of almost 20% to try and kill it, um, and it's kind of been gone. I mean, central banks have done a really good job of eliminating inflation or getting it down, and here it is back again. And so everyone's just um, very, very scared about it becoming entrenched. So um, at, at, you know the headline inflation rate in Australia is 7.8% as of the end of December, and that's obviously way too high. Um, but there are a number of deflationary forces that are going to push that back down. And some, and most of those deflationary forces are actually long-term in nature. So I'm actually quite bullish on the outlook for inflation. I think, um, you know, there's three things. There's, there's demographics. So as we, as we age as a population, we, we spend less money and we're less productive. And so we have less, less economic activity happening as, a, as the population ages. Um, secondly, um, technology. We just know that things get cheaper and faster, and you know we've now got uh, Chat GPT, which is going to replace, you know, vast swathes of industry. Maybe even financial advisors, if we're not careful, then. But it's certainly going to push the price of things down. Things like you know contracts and and scripts and these sorts of things. Uh, and then you've just got the uh, you know the um, globalization, which you could argue that's coming to an end, but still manufacturing is moving, generally speaking, to the lowest cost environment, which is also deflationary. So those big three deflationary forces have pushed inflation down from, you know, in the double digit levels, you know, to even, you know, less than 1% in, in a lot of countries. And I think we'll, we'll probably trend back towards that um, situation. The question for central banks is, is how long will that take? And is there a chance that it stays high and sticky? And if there's a chance that it stays high and sticky, they're going to whack interest rates up. So current market pricing is for the cash rate in Australia to go to 4.1%. So that's three hikes and both the NAB and the ANZ have moved to that in the past week. And then the US, you're looking at rates in excess of 5%. So 
We're still not through the woods yet on interest rate rises, and and maybe even if the if the Reserve Bank is very very concerned about inflation, they could go even higher than four percent. So a little bit uncertain at the moment. My personal view is that they don't need to go that high. That, that signs of deflation and disinflation will start to come out in the numbers. Um, but if I'm wrong on that, then then rates go higher. It was interesting too um, the grilling that Governor Lowe received during the week when. He was sitting before um, government officials and it just showed how important it is that the Reserve Bank is an independent body because you could see they were trying to goad him and, um, and criticise the fact that there was most likely going to be at least another three interest rate rises. So, yeah, it, that, that was really interesting to me because I'd never sort of experienced that situation where you could see them getting bullied into making a particular decision. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was that was an interesting point as well. Um, you touched on the US there as well. Will either of the two countries show two quarters of negative growth and therefore enter a technical recession? Does it matter? Um, but yeah, do you think that'll actually occur? Yeah, I'm in the it doesn't matter camp. Um, I think obviously for newspaper headlines um, and, and politicians, you know, I think the R word's really important. So, as you said, two quarters of negative uh, real GDP growth um, is technically a recession. So the important thing is the word real, which means after inflation. So if you're running a, a business, just say you run the corn and milk bar, and maybe milk prices are up 10%, but you only have an 8% increase in sales, you've, you've deemed to be gone backwards in real terms by 2%. But if you're running that milk bar, you've still got 8% more cash going through your till. Your profits might be not going up as much, but certainly your, your top line is. So I think a lot of people are focusing on real real GDP growth. But as I said earlier, Ben, you know, inflation in Australia is 8%. So they take that 8% off the level of economic growth and then tell you what it is. So if we're only growing the economy at 6% and prices growing at 8 we deem to have gone negative. So yes, technically we could have uh, a couple of quarters of negative growth both here and in the US. It's more likely to happen in the US than here because I think they've started hiking earlier and they've been more aggressive. So as I said, their interest rates go to 5%. There are 30-year mortgages, which is what most of them have, uh, fixed-rate mortgages. They're, they went above 7%. They're now back down to 6 So I think there's a lot of tightening that's already happened in the US economy, which you know could push them into recession. I think Australia, you know, we've talked about this before, we're in such a fortunate position as a country because we can immigrate our way out of a problem and we're going to add 300 to 350,000 uh, new workers to our economy this year uh, and all of those people are going to enter the labour force, they're going to have good jobs, they're going to you know, buy stuff, they're going to build houses and they're going to boost economic activity. Um, it's about a 2.5% lift in the labour force in one year, which is, which is a great sort of shot in the arm at a time the economy is slowing. So I think, I think we'll probably avoid a recession on the back of that big pickup in, uh, in, uh, in workers coming in. But I think the US could, uh, could dip, into the, dip into the red. Yeah, you, you actually touched on my next question, which was uh, specifically unemployment and how the government tempers this runaway growth in you know, the CPI numbers as well. Um, yeah, there is, there is a scenario, Ben, where you know, the Phillips curve doesn't work. I mean, uh, we talked about this at one of our morning meetings. Is There's this theory that was developed in the 1950s by a New Zealand economist 
who said there's a stable and inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment, which means if one goes up, the other one goes down. So the, the, the theory was, if you want to get inflation down, you have to get unemployment up, i.e. you need to slow the economy down to such a point that people start sacking workers. And that's how you get inflation down. And what we're seeing now actually is a paradox in that we've got falling unemployment and falling inflation, certainly in the US. The labour force data yesterday in Australia ticked up a bit, but generally speaking, we've had more people in jobs and yet inflation's coming down. Now, that's not supposed to happen according to this Phillips curve, but I, I don't believe it. It's way too simplistic. And reality is you've got this super tight, super hot labour market, um, but wages pressure is not really pushing through. Um, so we're seeing this deflationary forces like oil prices and, and car prices and rents and all that sort of stuff to come down at a time that, that you know, unemployment's, um, you know, very, very low. So it's this Goldilocks scenario, which I really don't think the market's uh, focusing on. I think that's probably one of the more likely outcomes is that we do have very, very strong employment markets uh, with unemployment remaining low and inflation coming down. And if that, if that scenario pans out, it's very, very bullish for equity markets. Yeah, right. It's interesting too what's going on in the States as far as the rifts or the reduction in workforces we're seeing in megatech. Mega um, you know, we saw Elon Musk coming through and cleaning out 75% of the staff at, at Twitter, yet it's still running as it was previously. So, yeah, the, I think we'd sort of grown somewhat fat and happy as far as jobs were concerned. And there wasn't that sort of evolutionary need to go on and, and work out where the, the next job actually was. And I agree with you, thought on chat GPT and AI and technology that it's going to force us to look into those other areas where the job opportunities actually are, just that, that shift, in, shift in workforce. But surely tech has a, a bit to do with the change in that Phillips curve as well, because, you know, as we said, things are getting cheaper and cheaper from a technological perspective, which means you don't, you don't need the labour in those particular areas anymore. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the, the tech stuff, I mean, the headlines are, you know, Yahoo sacks 5% of its staff and Amazon sacks 10% of its staff and all this sort of stuff is that, you know, if you add all those numbers together, they, they're, they're like one month's employment. I mean, the US added over 500,000 new jobs last month. And so if you add up all of those, um, those uh, you know, job cuts from all those tech companies, you don't get even close to 500,000. So there's a little bit of a headline thing in there. In terms of getting fat and happy, I don't think companies are fat and happy. I think if you look at hours worked, they keep going up. I mean, people are stretched. I mean, we're all stretched here at Sharon Partners. Our company's grown like the blazers, yet we're still sort of, you know, running on pretty much the same infrastructure we were, you know, um, before it grew like blazers. So I think everyone's, everyone's kind of um, pretty flat out. And, you know, there aren't any candidates for jobs. So there's lots of job openings there's 11 million job openings in the US. There's only, you know, there's less than 6 million unemployed people. So there's two jobs for every person who wants one. In Australia, it's not as bad, but there's still more than one vacancy. So I think everyone's everyone's sort of not working two jobs, but a lot of people are covering um, the work that, you know, another another worker should be doing, but they just can't find them. So I think, I think the economy is running pretty lean. Uh, obviously, there's some companies... We talked about the AMP this morning. Does seem to have a very high cost structure, so there are some companies who probably need to who, who need to trim their cost structure. But I think, generally speaking, um, you know, la labor's uh, labor's in very short supply and, and demand's still pretty strong. 
Just on that issue, it's just a fantastic point that you raised this morning. Can you tell everyone what the cost of running the wealth division in AMP is on an annual basis? Yeah, it was $791 million last year. That is just unbelievable. Which seems like a lot, right? It does seem like a lot, yes. All right, so um, back here in Australia, a lot of borrowers' uh, interest rates have tripled very, very quickly, as we discussed earlier, with the cash rate rising and already landed at a number that the younger borrowers haven't even considered plugging into their calculators. I know you and I have been through much higher interest rates in the past. A lot of the younger folks haven't. The retail numbers for December were weak and the likes of JB Hi-Fi and Temple and Webster just reported weak numbers, yet Bunnings, Kmart, Target, um, through West Farmers, their numbers were solid. So have we started to witness belt tightening? Will we ever see it or are the younger generation just simply addicted to spending because they've never had to toe the line in the past? Yeah, good good question. Um, I mean, I've, I've got a 27-year-old daughter and a 29-year-old son, um, and, uh, and and their marginal propensity to consume is kind of one. <laughs> my, my daughter's probably 1.05. <laughs> so um, so for, for those listeners, uh, the marginal propensity to consume is the share of your income that you spend as opposed to to save. Um, so I think yeah, there's a there's a bit of that. There's a bit of um, you know just keep just keep spending. It's really interesting because the again the economic theory says you get this collapse in um, consumer sentiment, and then you get a collapse in 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 spending. We've had a collapse in consumer sentiment because every time you pick up a paper, it's either you know you, your electricity bills are going up or your mortgage bills are going up or you know your food bills are going up, and so it's all doom and gloom. So people are really really pessimistic. Um, and that's showing up in all the, all the you know, the Melbourne, uh, Westpac Melbourne Institute Consumer Survey, which goes back to the 1970s. We're at recession or even depression levels of consumer sentiment, and yet people still spending. And, you know, again, it's really difficult to separate, you know, pre-COVID from COVID. And, you know, there's a lot of pent-up savings. There's, you know, 250 billion of excess household savings, which is over 10% of GDP. It's sitting there in bank accounts. You know, no one's no one's taken a holiday for three years, so there's all this revenge spending, revenge travel, and I think you're you're seeing the tail end of that. Ben, I think the you know, the savings rates kind of gone to almost zero, so all that excess saving we're starting to now chew into that, and it just feels like we're spending up to the cliff. So this this concept there's going to be a cliff in in consumption because everyone's just gone through their savings, and then all of a sudden. You know, your mortgage rolls off from fixed to floating. You know, the school fees have come in again, et cetera, et cetera. And people will just stop spending and the economy will grind to a halt. And that's the th- that's a theory that people are just spending right up to that. Now, my view is probably a little bit more, again, optimistic because a lot of people predict the Phillips curve. The RBA will hike rates to a point where they get 1% or 2% unemployment above where it is today. So we get to maybe 5 5 and a half. And that's where the stress really happens is when people lose their job. If, you, if you're employed, you're going to keep your house. There's lots and lots of data and research going back decades to say as long as people keep their jobs, they won't have a problem with their house and their mortgage. They might reduce their spending, but they're not going to default. And that's where a lot of these theories kind of break down as if they're assuming that unemployment goes up. I don't think it does. Uh, I, think, I think employment will stay pretty robust. In which case the the you know the economic outlook for spending is not as bad as some people predict. Yes. Okay. 
you, you, you talk, you spoke then of the uh, the spending cliff. What about the widely publicised interest rate cliff that there's an expectation with so many borrowers on a fixed rate? You were smart enough to lock in a fixed rate at a much lower level some time back. And um, there's all, all this talk about a lot of these borrowers falling off the interest rate cliff as they move into um, floating rate notes, which are, as I said earlier, you know, three times what they're currently paying. Is, is that a real thing? There's a lot of talk about that. Yeah, the um, the banks have um, published. So we've had Westpac's quarterly out this morning, NAB yesterday, and Combank's four-year result on Wednesday. And, and in their in their presentation decks, there's a little bit more data on this. And the Reserve Bank already also put out a chart which uh, estimates the amount of uh, fixed that roll to, to floating. Um, I read somewhere the other day, and I haven't verified this, that 75% of fixed rate loans have already rolled to floating rate, which sounds like a high number. But my understanding is a lot of people fix for one year or two years, and there's not that many people who fix for three and four years. But the hump, the big hump is May, June, July this year, where there's that's where the bulk of these loans were written. So, um, but a, a lot of it's already run off, which, which I find, I found interesting. I hadn't read that stat before. Um, so again, I think this is, yeah, I mean, prima facie, I'm going from paying a 2% fixed rate to a 6% variable rate. I go from paying, if I've got a million bucks, I go from paying, you know, 20 grand a year to 60 grand a year. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a big chunk of change, right? Uh, medium household, household incomes you know, $130,000 or something. So it, it's a big chunk of that. And all of that will come out of consumption. And so I, my, 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 my spending will, will reduce by, you know, 10 or 20% um, if, if I've got a million dollar loan um, and, it, and it goes from two to six. So that, that's the theory. I think a lot of people are A, well aware of it. So, you know, they've, they've, they've adjusted their spending already. Um, a lot of people are way ahead on their mortgage payments. There's record amounts of cash in offset accounts. So it, look, it's, it, it's definitely going to have an impact on the economy. Um, I'm just surprised we haven't seen it yet, Ben, because if, 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 if that number 75 is too high and it's only 60 or 50, surely we've seen a, seen a slowdown in spending and we haven't really seen a slowdown in spending. So I think people probably have adjusted their, their household budgets a little bit. I'm not saying oh, there's going to be no impact, but I think the impact may be overstated. Do you think the banks are ready? Banks are prepared for what's to come? Yeah, the, the provisions are quite quite significant. In fact, one number I took out of the Westpac result, and I just briefly looked at it this morning, is that their uh, loan arrears actually fell down. So a, a loan arrear is when someone's behind on their payments, and they came down from 0.75% of loans to 07 So they actually had an improvement in their credit quality in the, in the quarter, which is, which is really interesting. Um, banks have set aside massive provisions for loan losses, um, and they also have enormous amounts of capital. So post the GFC, there were sweeping global regulations for banks called Basel I, Basel II, Basel III, because Basel in Switzerland is where the Bank of International Settlements is based, and they set a lot of these rules. And so banks are you know, ridiculously well capitalised. They've got 11 or 12% tier one capital, which is the highest level of capital a bank can have. And, then, and they've you know, often got you know, 3 or 4 or 5% of tier two capital. So Banks are very, very well capitalised and they have, you know, significant loan loss provisions, most of which they don't need. They did a lot of provisioning during COVID because they really didn't know how bad it was going to be. The Reserve Bank said unemployment is going to be 15%. So everyone provided on the back 15% unemployment rate. 
that does a lot of damage to housing. So banks have got these huge loan loss provisions, some of which they wrote back last year. So I think the banks are very, very well placed for even even a, even a hard landing in the, in the housing market. I, I, I find actually, based on what you were saying with Westpac, I think NAB showed the same thing about arrears where that actually slipped back as well. But um, um, I always find their business model odd. Obviously they know how to do it. They, uh, they're smarter than me, but you know, I've got, I've got a loan, I'm at 6.1 or whatever it is, and I'm going to go out and get a different loan with a different bank because they won't come to the party on the current floating rate. So they're penalising loyalty. They're forcing you to go and find another loan. And I know they'll offer it to me when I go to leave. It's just such an unusual model, but, you know, that's by the by. It's based around inertia, um, Ben. So the, the vast majority of people don't shop around their, their financial services, let alone their bank loan, but they just don't shop around their financial services. So you can get a 4.85% interest rate on an ING direct saver. And there are some rules around, you've got to put you know, so much money and you've got to spend so, so many times on the card each month. So there's some rules around it. And if you don't meet those rules, you, you get hardly any interest. So you've got to be really careful on how you do it. But there's Macquarie Bank's got a, um, uh, a bank, the, uh, sorry, a bank account that doesn't have these bells and whistles that pays 3.7. But you know, there's, there's heaps of money sitting in bank accounts earning zero. In fact, I've probably got some money in a bank account earning zero. So it's just like people aren't, you know, they're not attuned to being, you know, money managers and going for the best rate. And often with the mortgage, you know, you, you, you've got a mortgage from NAB, you've always been a NAB customer, and it may not be the best product in the market. It may have switching costs. You know, the, the, the uh, APRA, ACCC, and the government got rid of a lot of switching costs years and years ago. In fact, when Wayne Swan was treasurer, that was one of his big bugbears was to get switching costs low so people could move. Um, but, you know, and it's like um, Jim Chalmers, um, Treasurer Jim Chalmers, just, you know, asked the ACCC to go and look at uh, how banks were giving people good deposit rates. So there's a whole investigation of that. But as I said, in the market already, you can get much better products. People just don't take advantage of them. So I don't think it's sort of blame the system. You know, there are products out there that you can go and get to give you a better deal. You can get a cheaper mortgage. You can get better financial advice by coming to Shoring Partners than you can from another firm, Ben, but not everyone's switching. They should be. They should go to the best place, right, which is Shoring Partners, but a lot of them don't. Indeed. All right, so let's point to the significance, of course, of, of when you're looking at unemployment, you're looking at interest rates, um, taking all of that into account, where to for residential property prices in Australia? Yeah, I, I still think they head lower. Um, there is um, there is a real there's a real tightness of supply though. I mean, I know because my daughter just kind of moved from one um, you know one uh, rental agreement to another, and the market's just ridiculously tight. I think the vacancy rate in Sydney is one percent. Um, but while while we've got while we've got interest rates, you know where they are at three point three five. Um, going probably to 4.1. I think there's just some inertia from buyers. Uh, again, you know, most people are going back to variable rate loans again because fixed rate loans have become quite expensive. Um, and so you're borrowing, you know, you're borrowing a lot of money, you're going to buy a house and, and you're, you're just not sure about what your, your borrowing costs are going to be. Are they going to be, you know, are interest rates going to be four, are they going to be four and a half, are they going to be five? So there's this caution amongst buyers because they really don't have 
um, clarity on what their funding costs are. And until that happens, um, I, I think the buyers stay nervous. And then in terms of the sellers, um, you know, expectations for what they can get for their house are probably based around A, what they paid for it, uh, and B, um, you know, probably where the market peaked. They kind of think that's where their house is worth is where the market peaked. So when Sydney prices are off 15%, they're probably 10% off in Melbourne. Um, they'll probably go down another, I don't know, five or 10, with a caveat being if the Reserve Bank want to follow this Phillips curve logic and get unemployment up, you'll get some people who have to sell. You know, they're, you know, they're struggle, they've lost their job, they bought at the top of the market, they geared up to the max uh, and they can't make the payments and they have to sell. We haven't had much of that except during the GFC, but you will get some of that. And that's where people hit the bid. And that's where you can see some, some pretty substantial corrections in some pockets of real estate. So if you've got you know, new housing estates or an obvious area where first home buyers go in, they've maxed out the government grant, they've borrowed from the bank of mum and dad, they've taken out the biggest mortgage, they're both working to pay the, you know, both um, uh, partners are working to pay off the mortgage and one or both of them lose their job, they're, they're toast, right? They have, to, they have to foreclose. And that's when you get the, the big corrections. Having said that, I've looked back at Sydney real estate prices as far as I can go. And data's pretty sketchy kind of pre-1950. I haven't, I haven't seen a 15% decline in real estate prices. I, I can't find one. So we're already in the biggest real estate bear market in history. Um, but again, people put that in the context of house prices went up 45% during COVID. But yeah, 15% is already a pretty substantial fall. Um, and you know, if the if there's if the Reserve Bank doesn't go too much harder than where they are now, I think the market will start to settle settle down. Yeah, right. That's an interesting point, actually. Um, well, whilst you're staying Sydney centric, because that's what you Sydney siders do, <laughs> um, you've got an election coming up. Uh, it's on the immediate horizon. What do you expect the outcome to be there? Yeah, interesting. Look, um, the Labor Party's uh, red-hot favourites, I think the coalition is about four to one <clears throat> on the betting sites. Now, I don't, I don't condone people going on betting sites, but they're a good place to look at how the market is handicapping, um, you know, outcomes, whether it's sporting outcomes or political outcomes. And so, yeah, Labor's red-hot, um, and they're, they're playing a game of uh, amateur tennis, which is you just hit the ball back over the net. So they're playing a very straight bat in terms of what their policies are. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I, I don't think we'll see massive changes to to what's going on in in, uh, in New South Wales, probably a little bit less pro-development and maybe a little bit more ESG. Um, so I think we'll see some subtle changes. But for most people, they won't even notice a change of government. If, you know, unless you're at the coalface of policy, um, you know, you probably don't, you're probably just not going to recognise it too much. I don't think it's going to have too much of a bearing. Given your wonderful knowledge of, of history, particularly in this country, do you know if we've had a, a period in time where we've had one party governing all levels across it? Actually, where's Tassie? Is Tassie Liberal or is, or is, that, um, is that Labor at the moment? I'm, I'm not sure about Tassie. I don't, I don't look at Tassie too much, but yeah, look, I think that that's a that's probably if you go back to the fifties and sixties, it, it felt like um, you know the Liberal Party was in power everywhere. Certainly, I mean, I grew up in Victoria, Ben, as you know, and we had we had um, Henry Bolte was in power for like a thousand years, 
and we had Robert Menzies in power in Canberra for a thousand years. So we had those two gentlemen um, were certainly representing the people of Victoria. So we had we had a certainly had a liberal uh, lock there. But I think in in more recent years, probably the last thirty or forty years, people like that balance of having you know Labor in one and Liberal in another, or vice versa. So I think that's been that's become the norm. It's just that check and balance. If you've got a bunch of raving socialists down in Victoria, they're tempered by, you know, some right-wing rat bags in Canberra and vice versa. But yeah, I think there's there's definitely a swing towards towards Labor across the country. And so you obviously got Labor in, in Canberra. You're about to have Labor in New South Wales. You've you've stuck with Labor in Victoria. Uh, Pally Shea's Labor, isn't she? Um, so you go around the country, McKinnon. Um, so yeah, I think most states are going to be Labor. What do you attribute that uh, that that leaning to? Why, why is the country at a state and federal level leaning towards Labor at the moment? Yeah, look, I, th- I think I mean hard to say, but I think a little bit of an implosion in the Liberal Party. I think you know this is this is you know a, a, a thousand you know miles above helicopter view of politics, but I think the the Liberal Party probably leans a little bit to the right. You know, seen as being, you know, misogynist, non-inclusive, um, a little bit too sort of uh, bolshy about about refugees and, and climate change and these sorts of things. And I think the mood of the of the um, of the electorate was about being more inclusive, having more female representation, being a little bit more um, attuned to climate change issues. And so you had this teal movement within within the Liberal Party that really did you know gutted at the last election. And look, you, if you study politics, you'll see these rifts happen, whether it's, you know, the communists splitting away from the Labor Party or the, the DLP split or, you know, the, the Democrats, the Democrat came out of the Liberal Party, Don Chip, you know. So from time to time, the, the party polarises um, too far in one direction. And you could probably look back in history and say, you know, the Tony Abbott, uh, Peter Dutton era, um, versus the Malcolm Turnbull area, and that created a schism in the Liberal Party, which you know manifested itself in the Teals. And whether the party can reunite around a new a new um, ideology, uh, the Labor Party's been through that situation before. There's a there's a centre unity, which is you know your Bob Hawke, Paul Keating stuff. Then you've got the left wing, which is you know Penny Wong, Anthony Albanese. You know, so the parties sort of oscillate between these sort of poles. Um, and that's what the Liberal Party's gone through. And it makes it, when it happens, it makes you unelectable because you can't really govern your own party, let alone govern the country. Yeah, good point. What is your view on the government's decision to create energy price caps? We've just seen in New South Wales and now setting a uh, coal reservation policy as well. Um, do you have a particular view either way on the on this policy? Yeah, look, um, I'm probably a little bit divided on it, you know, because I've got my sort of, um, you know, economists, market economists sort of bent saying, look, let the, let the market determine the price of things and just get on with it. Um, and then I've got the other side of me that looks at, so, well, you know, it's about, it's about inflation. It's not about energy. It's about inflation. And, you know, energy is the one thing that comes along and really knocks you for six as an economy. You get this inflation and then you've got to slam the brakes on and put lots of people out of job and cause a lot of misery to get inflation down. So why don't you just solve the energy problem in the first place? So I think that's where they're coming from, where the government's coming from, is we need to solve the energy situation. It's not just us, it's everywhere in the world, particularly in Europe, right? Because they're also relying on Russian gas. I mean, not 
Italy gets 90% of its energy or got 90% of its energy from Russian gas. So they're all sort of addicted to this, to this cheap drug and now it's gone. So I think if I'm Jim Chalmers, I'm looking at it saying, look, the worst thing that can happen to this economy is we get a spike in energy prices because of what's happening in global markets. And yet we're, we're the biggest LNG exporter in the world. So yet we don't have any LNG for our own economy. We're the biggest coal exporter in the world, but we don't have any coal for our own economy because we all want to wean ourselves off this stuff and put in wind farms. And you're kind of sitting there going, well, your electricity bill just doubled, your fuel prices have just doubled, and you've got 8% inflation because you didn't have an energy policy that kept prices low for your domestic customers. I mean, I know in WA, I think, is it West Farmers or one of the companies there, they have to provide gas into the local market at a subsidised price because that's part of the that's part of the the bargain they get for digging up part of our country and sending it overseas. So I think what what Chalmers is trying to do, what the government's trying to do, is they're trying to engineer this situation where we've got low and stable energy prices because you know this is our country, it's our fossil fuels, it's our it's our gas. Why don't we try and subsidise our own economy? And then sell overseas, and that's what they're trying to do. Now, so I, I've got sympathy with that with that um, approach, Ben. But I've also got look the way you're going about it, it's really clumsy. As, as Andrew Hines, our head of research, said in the morning meeting this morning, you're taking super high grade uh, thermal coal, which should be going into the most efficient um, power generation sources in the world, not to crappy old you know um, Law Yang or whatever it is. Um, uh, and so I've got sympathy for that view as well as that. You know, that you should let the market determine the best place to produce energy and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I'm a, a little bit mixed on that. I'm probably a little bit leaning towards let's get inflation down, let's get energy prices under control longer term, let's have a robust, stable energy system in Australia based on the abundant national resources we have. Um, but it's just really clumsy about how you get to that point. Yeah, good answer. Okay. All right, so let's let's look overseas. We've got this theoretical uh, re-engagement by the Chinese to the rest of the world, the reopening. Um, is this significant for markets? Yeah, I think it really is. I think it's probably underestimated. Um, I mean, you know, context is that um, China is, is the um, driver of most of the growth in the world. It's not the biggest economy, um, but the change in, in its growth is... It makes up about two thirds of the growth in the world. So, you know, the US economy is growing at one or two, China's growing at six, and is probably going to grow at six this year. And that six makes up more than the one or two from America, even though America is a bigger economy. So, without China and, and increasingly India um, driving growth, world growth really is quite anemic. So, we kind of really need China to continue on this, um, on this industrialization and um, and you know GDP per capita growth path that's been on for the last twenty or thirty years. So obviously their decision or Xi Jinping's decision last year to focus on on pandemic um, and, and health issues just took China off off the world. So hence you know we had a big a big slowdown in global growth. We had big falls in share markets because if you take China out, there's not a lot of growth left. So the decision on the seventh of, of December where they said, right, we're just abandoning zero COVID, just let the economy rip and let the, let the virus rip, for want of a better term. Um, that's a game, absolute game changer. And you, you did see markets start to sort of pick up in November. 
and accelerate through through um, December and January because they're repricing the fact that China's back on stream probably six or nine months before uh, people thought. Most economists had, you know, them being in lockdown through Chinese New Year, lockdown through their winter, and then coming out of it sometime in the second or third quarter this year. The fact that they did it back in December took a lot of people by surprise, including us. And we just thought that was a game changer. So we, we took that and another couple of catalysts to say, right, we're going to move back to neutral inequities, whereas we had been quite quite cautious, looking at slowdown in global growth, tightening financial conditions, et cetera. So I think China really has a, a game change. And the reopening stuff, I mean, there's a lot of that's just rhetoric, right? I mean, um, but we did have the Chinese uh, president get up at Davos, you know, the World Economic Forum, and make some very positive announcements about, you know, we want to be, we want to be open, you know, China needs to be open. We want to grow, you know, so they're very good noises. And for Australia, you know, we, we were the whipping boy for a lot of their, uh, a lot of their rhetoric and they picked on us um, and banned coal and what, you know, grain and, and wine and, and all sorts of things. And, you know, for Australian companies, a relaxation of those is going to be quite positive. Just as an aside, you raised a really interesting point, so how they've switched from sort of that, um, zero COVID policy uh, to, to opening up completely. How much of that do you reckon was because of their fear of an underlying social revolt or was it just an economic decision? Yeah, I mean, we'll never know um, unless you've got, you know, a spy inside the Politburo, you'll never know. But I, I, I think the timing was around the, the work. I think they've got a thing called a working commission or a working party or something that does the five-year plans and they probably would have done some, and this is just pure speculation, they probably would have done some numbers on, um, you know, let it rip versus stay in lockdown. And I think they balanced that with the fact that the Omicron um, variant is, you know, the mortality was nothing like some of the other variants. So they just felt they could get to herd immunity with, with not a massive loss of life in percentage terms. You know, the economists reckon one or two, two million people will die. Um, so that's a massive loss of life. But in percentage terms, it's quite low. And so I think there's a balance between the damage that we're doing to the economy, the civil unrest, you know, they're always a little bit worried about that, but they say they're not, um, and, and the economics. And I think if you put the three, the three together, um, you know, that, that's, that's how they came to the decision. But, but, but I don't know. I don't, I'm just speculating. All right, you said the spy word, so that, that brings me to the next point of curiosity. What the hell is going on with these spy balloons? I have I have no idea. It's just bizarre. It's like, why why would you persist with something like that? Um, it's just like you're trying to pick a fight, but they're not trying to pick a fight, but it looks like they are picking a fight. It's just, it's bizarre. I can't make head nor tail of it. I just thank heavens that Donald Trump's not in the White House because Imagine how he's going to respond to something like that, you know? <laughs> it's, it's such an unusual thing. And I, I, I sort of, I'm wondering whether it's got to do with the fact that they're now the fastest aging population on the planet. You know, are there issues that they're concerned about that they're trying to destabilize, um, you know, get rid of economic stability around the world, which is going to benefit them. I, I can't piece it together. I just don't get it. I, I, don't, I don't get it either. Oh, well. Okay, so you recently took a trip to the UK, uh, which we were chatting about a couple of days ago. What were some of the more interesting observations from that trip, from an economic yeah. point of 
Yeah, no, interesting. So our, our parent company, EFG, holds an investment summit, a traditionally held an investment summit in the first couple of weeks of January when, you know, we're all on holiday, but the Europeans just power through because it's their winter. And they invite, you know, a number of their um, their CROs, as they call them, their, their, their advisors uh, into London, and then they invite a whole bunch of guest speakers. So it's, it's a really good forum and, and it's a good cross-section. And I get to meet some of my colleagues in the UK. I also went around and saw a number of fund managers that we use in our in our SMA portfolios. So we, we, we outsource the things like global equities and liquid alternatives and stuff to other managers, a lot of whom based in London. So it was a good opportunity for me. Number one takeaway, Ben, was just how bearish everyone was. So almost everyone I, I spoke to um, said that they were positioned for, you know, a really tough first half of the year as the global economy slides into recession and earnings estimates get revised down and people get worried about how deep the trough is and so they cut the PEs. And so you can come up with scenarios where equity markets fall, you know, 30 to 50% in some cases people were talking about. And so almost everyone I spoke to was bearish, maybe not to that degree, but I think from the perspective of being in London, they had a really, really tough year last year, not just in terms of, of, um, of the economy, because the economy there is, it's, you know, it, it's really, really struggling under leaving, leaving Brexit and having a, you know, and, and being in lockdown and having health issues and, and a lot of political turnover. So, you know, I think if, you, if you've lived, lived in London in 2022, you're going to be bearish anyway. Um, but a lot, of the, a lot of global investment portfolios were down 20, 25% last year because the bond market was down 25% and the equity market was down 20%. So I think a lot of people, you know, people, as we know, get bearish in bear markets and bullish in bull markets. So I was a bit of that, but I was just surprised how bearish people were. Um, and that, and, you know, most people said that analysts' earnings estimates were too high and were going to be revised down. So that was probably the major takeaway. And for me, it was like, well, if everyone's bearish, you're probably getting close to the bottom of the market. And, you know, that's been proven with this very sharp rally we've seen from the November lows um, and things like Tesla shares doubling in a month and things like that. So kind of, you know, um, it's like playing a game of cards. You've got to know what the what the other person's holding in their hand, um, you know, as well as what you're playing. And I think everyone was very bearish. You, you talk about global portfolios falling 20, 25%. What was interesting for mine was some of these big tech companies that, that really do run the show around the world. They were down 40s, 50s, up to 80s, 90s, you know, percent, which was quite a stunning collapse. Yes, a lot of them were overvalued, understandably, but now a lot of them are trading on, you know, extremely competitive PEs when you take into account the sort of growth that they're achieving. I'm fast becoming a bit of a fan of that space, particularly the big tech in the US. Do you have a perspective or a view there? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really good point, um, Ben. You know, one one of the reasons you diversify your portfolio globally is to get access to things that you can't get in your home market. So, very simplistically, Australia has very good mines, very good banks, a couple of supermarkets, and and that's that's kind of it, right? If you look globally, the two biggest, fastest growing industries are technology and healthcare. And yes, we've got a couple of good tech stocks like Zero and Altium. We own both of those stocks in our portfolios. And in the healthcare space, you've got CSL and ResMed, again, world-class companies. But to really get exposure to those industries, you really need to go offshore, usually to Wall Street, because most of the companies are listed in, in the US. Um, and so you've got to get access to those things. So 
Take something like, I don't know, ride sharing and food delivery. So if you look at that whole industry, we know it's being transformed massively, right? We know we've got several players in the industry, whether it's, you know, DoorDash or Lyft or DD or Uber, um, you know, a whole bunch of companies in that industry. But, you know, how does an Australian investor, you know, play that disruption? You can't buy an Aussie stock that gives you that. You need to go and buy Uber. And one of the presentations actually in London was from an analyst um, who is an expert in, in that whole space. And I came away very feeling very good about Uber as an investment. I haven't invested in it. I haven't really looked at it closely. But, you know, that winner takes all. They are the biggest, they're the most profitable, and it's super competitive. And you're going to have some of the competitors fall away, like Deliveroo's pulled out of the Australian market, for example, because they just can't get scale. If you don't get scale, you can't get drivers. You can't get drivers, you can't get scale. So Uber's really, really well positioned. But again, back to the generalization of if you want to invest in the cloud or you want to invest in AI or you want to invest in ride sharing or, or any of these disruptive you know, technologies and industries, employ a manager or, or get an advisor to look at, at, at global opportunities for you because you just can't get them in the Aussie market. And yeah, you can go and buy more ComBank and CSL and BHP shares, but they're, they're just going to, you know, they're a different dynamic than what's going on with technology. You've got to, you've got to have exposure to those global, global leaders. Yeah, agreed. Um, recently, a US-based group called Hindenburg Research wrote a detailed report about the India domiciled Adani group of companies where they accused Adani of stock manipulation and accounting fraud. The result has been a precipitous collapse in the Adani share price and a securities exchange investigation into both Hindenburg and Adani. Given how difficult it is for these companies to raise funds, to negotiate debt, all that sort of stuff, post these reports and the dramatic sell-downs that occur, where do you stand on these types of reports that are clearly designed to kneecap the share prices? Um, you know, you'd also expect that these guys have taken short positions in these companies uh, prior to the release of the, the, the report. So... You know, it's, as you well know, it's much easier to scare someone out of something than to encourage them to get into it. So where do you stand on these reports that are clearly made extremely public? The media love it because it creates a, a collapse in a particular company, but then that company, through no potentially no wrongdoing of their own, can't actually get access to money and rebuild their business. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? So you're kind of in the realm of, you know, freedom of speech, Um and, and, you know, re research reports that are clearly designed to, to create an outcome um, that favours the person who wrote it. So these, these short and distort campaigns, as, they, as, they get, as they're called, is you get a hedge fund that, you know, goes and borrows a whole bunch of shares in Adani and sells them into the market and then puts out a research report saying the company's worth half of what, you know, it's trading at. It, you know, people believe that it falls in half and they, um, and they buy back the shares and make a profit. So that's kind of the business model. Um, the reality is that, you know, confidence is super important in investment markets, as we know, Ben. A lot of, a lot of you know, the value in a business is, A, are the, are the accounts, you know, accurate? Uh, you know, is the, is the valuation in the balance sheet accurate? Are the profits actually real profits and not accounting profits? Are the management telling the truth or are they telling you porkies? A lot of that, you know, you have to inherently have confidence because you can't go and verify absolutely every single thing, whether the, you know, the, the, the you know, CEO is being truthful or not, whether the, 
you know, the inventory that's in the balance sheet is worth what they say. You can't do that as an investor. So you kind of need to rely on the system. Um, and the system has some, some flaws as we've seen. You know, Enron was a fraud. Bernie, you know, Bernie Madoff managed to hoodwink the SEC for, you know, 15 or 20 years with a Ponzi scheme. Um, Wirecard, the Wirecard fraud in, in Germany, you know, the German index put that into their top 100 index and it was a fraud. So, you know, there are frauds out there and, and you kind of need people to flush them out. So you kind of need these agents that, that just look at companies that may be fraudulent or, or be based on erroneous information or pumped up or whatever. We kind of need these agents out there to do this dirty work. So I think they're good for the market, the health of the market in general. I think sometimes they're a little bit, you know, if you, if you create a, um, you know, like Seek, I think Seek, there was someone wrote a short report on Seek saying all the numbers in China were fabricated and the, the share price reacted quite violently. As it turned out, you know, most of the allegations were made in that short report were erroneous and the, the share price went back up again. But you kind of go, I'd rather have that than these frauds continuing and, you know, doing like so much damage. Like, I don't know if you've seen any of the Bernie Madoff uh, documentaries, but the damage that did to people was, was massive. And you kind of want to say, I actually want some, you know, some some bad guys out there uh, getting getting caught by these short uh, short sellers, rather than it continuing doing even more damage. So I think it's a it's a necessary evil, if that makes sense. Interesting perspective. I mean, I was sort of likening it to a you know to a run on the banks where confidence is gone, as you say, it's so key. But the banks will never hold hold enough cash to pay everyone out, right? So once that confidence has disappeared, so there's obviously got to be some sort of happy medium in between. Yeah, I, I think the financial systems are, and and you know is, is an exception to what I just said. So during the GFC, I remember you know I remember being at Macquarie Bank and one of the newspapers, I think it been the South China Mining Morning Post or Wall Street Journal Asia or someone like that, like a notable newspaper, was doing a story about you know, JP Morgan pulling its credit lines from, from Macquarie and some other banks and they wanted a comment. And it's like, you kind of go, well, if I give you a comment, it's either Macquarie and other bank denies JP Morgan pulling its funding lines, or if it's true, it's JP Morgan pulls funding lines. So either of those headlines, you're going to get smashed, right? So the, the best thing for the journalists to do is to not write anything at all, which I think is what ended up happening. But when the markets are really fragile like that, you can't have people questioning the you know the stability of the financial system as you said you know you get a run on the bank if everyone tries to take their money out of the bank the bank goes broke so you kind of need that confidence so i think the australian government and other governments around the world banned short selling on financial shares during the gfc because you just can't you can't have the the system being taken down by short sellers so i don't think that's the case in the dani i don't think the system's being taken down by by short sellers i think you know the, the market's voting on whether or not I haven't looked at it. It's not a stock in my in my lane, so I'll stay in my lane. But I, you know, the market's obviously voting, like it's done on all the the Chinese property developers. You know, their their bonds are trading at five cents on the dollar, for example. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. So to bring it back to the reporting season that we're currently enduring at the moment, um, has anything to date surprised you? And what should we be looking for from here? Yeah, um, probably the banks have been a surprise. I mean, a surprise, but not a surprise. So put that in context. So we've got an underweight position to banks in our, in our portfolios that we manage for clients. So, you know, the market, the market weight for banks is around 20, 
23, 24%. We're more like 15. So we're not like zero weight because they're an important part of the market and they pay fully frank dividends, blah, blah, blah. But we we felt going into, into a slowdown in the domestic economy that maybe that wasn't being priced. So but what really came out with Commonwealth Bank's result this week was the, the net interest margin. So the theory is in a rising interest rate environment, a bank puts up its mortgage rates straight away, but they're a bit slow to put up the deposit rates, which is why the government's now investigating how banks pay and retail deposits. So you get this expansion in your net interest margin, which is the different difference between the price you lend at and the price that you borrow at. So that expands as interest rates go up. Um, my thesis was always, yeah, but it gets competed away because we were talking earlier about switching from one mortgage provider to another. That's a lot easier to do now than it used to be. You used to have to go into a bank and fill out forms and then walk into another bank, fill out more forms. Now you can do it online or through a mortgage broker. It's really easy to do. So those switching costs um, make, make the mortgage industry so much more competitive now. So you've seen players like Macquarie emerge from nowhere to be now 5% of the mortgage market in Australia, for example. So it's great that these net interest margins are going up, but it's just all being competed away. And that's what we've seen. So net interest margins were lower than people thought. And the guidance the banks were giving was, you know, probably going to be staying under pressure because credit growth's really fallen away. I mean, no one's borrowing money at the moment. You know, uh, 20% of the mortgage, uh, 20% of the real estate market at the moment is new buyers. 80% is just people switching. So there's not a lot of, um, you know, new, new credit demand. So the, the banks were really surprised. So Combank fell 10% about time because I think it's overpriced, um, but it's taken the other banks with it. Um, so that was a surprise. Um, I was a little bit surprised early on by some of the upgrades we were selling from retailers. So we saw upgrades from uh, Super Cheap Auto. We saw upgrades from JB Hi-Fi. And, and then that's turned into downgrades. So we saw Nick Scarley and Temple and Webster. So I think the COVID beneficiaries... Um, really, you know, obviously that's slowing down fast. So furniture and, and housewares and things like that. But other retailers have done really well. So you mentioned earlier, like West Farmers. West Farmers had a cracking result. So retail's been really mixed. It's been hot and cold. And you can't just throw a blanket over retail. It really is quite nuanced. So things like um, Bunnings and stuff have done really well, but Nick Scully's slowed down. So I think retailing has been a really tough space. We don't own in our in our core portfolio. We really don't own any retail at all. And I'm looking at that space, saying there may be some opportunities. Like if the market starts to get really concerned about the slowdown, and they absolutely hammer some of these retail stocks, I think there might be some opportunities for investors to to weigh into that. But that's probably been the surprise. The banks have been much worse than people thought. The miners have been kind of as expected. And then in the in industrials, it's been a really mixed bag. You mentioned your underweight banks. What are your other positions overweight, underweight? Energy is probably still the biggest overweight. Um, so we still have a view that, um, you know, the, the current prices of, of energy stocks, so Santos and Woodside in particular, do not reflect the, the dynamics of the energy market. Um, the, the, is a, as a material and growing risk that we see another acceleration in energy prices, because as China comes back online, and world economic growth is more robust than people think, um, we've had, we have a supply issue. So both the Russians and, and OPEC have cut production. Um, the US is running down its strategic reserves, which it can't do forever. And I think demand is, is picking up. The, the, 
you know, there'll be more, there'll be more uh, oil demand this year than last year. And I, I, we can't see any more supply. So the big, the big energy companies globally are printing massive profits, but they're all going into buybacks. No one's doing any more exploration because no one wants to fund it, right? Shareholders don't want it and banks don't want to lend to it. So I, I see a real supply issue with energy and a risk, not, not a probability, but a risk that we see oil prices jump up again. I want to have... I want to have a hedge against that. So I'm very overweight energy. Um, you know, this year so far, energy hasn't performed that well. So it's costing us a little bit. But I see it as an insurance premium that we're paying for something that may happen. So that's probably our biggest overweight. We're kind of neutral on materials. Um, and then it's really just quality, quality growth. We've probably got a little bit too much of inflation protection. So thinking back to last year, heading into a deflationary or stagflationary environment, we want companies with really strong pricing power so they can pass the higher costs on to their customers. So Amcor, Brambles, Transurban, APA, those four stocks fit into that category. And they're the stocks you probably don't want to own if we're going into a deflationary environment or a disinflationary environment because um, they, they, you know, the, what worked on the way up kind of works on, you know, less on the way down. So we've seen Brambles, Amcor, API, Transurban, probably not run with the market. And if you think the market's going to run, um, you probably don't want to have too much of those. But, you know, we've got lots of quality. So we've got, you know, Zero, Altium, uh, Goodman Group, CSL, all high ROE, good growth businesses, well managed. Some of them are a little bit expensive, but that's okay. Um, so that's kind of where we're overweight. We don't have a lot of, I suppose, lower quality, deep cyclical stocks. Um, so we're not trying to buy turnarounds or any of that sort of stuff. It's more focusing on companies. That, so if we're wrong on the market and it's tougher, we've got some real quality quality growth stocks that will hold up. Sorry. All right, last question. I feel like I've exhausted you and you need a recharge. <laughs> what will the ASX 200 be on December the 31st, 2023? Uh, what is it today? Oh, seven, four-ish. I can't remember the exact number from yesterday, but it was a bit stronger yesterday. So say seven, four, three, seven, four, four. Okay, well, m most people that, that I follow have got it being flat for the year, but that's boring. So let's have let's have 8,000. Let's put 8,000 in there. So a little bit of growth and, and a dividend. So if you get if that happens, you'll get, what, four or 5% capital growth, another four or five from dividends. You're looking at high single digits, which is kind of what it's done for the last... 125 years so it's a bit of a boring answer but i think i think we should grind high it'll be bumpy ben as we know uh it might even be v-shaped but i think we'll probably end up the year yeah a little bit higher than where we are today mate thank you for an unbelievably good summary of what's going on around the world and locally um thank you to everyone for listening to this interview if you've got any queries about this discussion or require any other information Please either call us on 9268117, shoot us an email or jump onto our website at monasterygroup.net. Thank you, Krabby. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Morrissey Group is a corporate authorised representative of Shore and Partners Limited, ABN 24003.
221583. Our financial services guide is viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au. Any content within this podcast is subject to the terms and conditions of Shore and Partners Limited's disclaimer as viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au forward slash disclaimer.